Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus, and uh, I love you, but I don't trust you. In fact, to the point that I knew my sermon notes were up here, and I printed a whole new copy because I figured one of you messed with these, and so, and I only thought that because I've done it to Paul, so uh, maybe he just swapped one page and saw how he handled it. <laughs> but uh, I want to get you thinking this morning with a question. <clears throat> I want you to really consider this. I want you to think about this. The question is this. What would be different about you if for one day your heart was replaced with the heart of Christ? I want you to really think about that. Think about what you go through in a day and what would be different about you if for one day your heart was replaced with the heart of Christ. How would that impact maybe your work? How would it impact the way that that you go about your work? How would it impact the way that you interact with your coworkers or those of you who are in school? Uh, What would be different about your attitude towards school and your teachers and the other students? What would be different? How about in your relationships? Would it change what you do or don't do on a date? Husbands, would it change the way you treat your wives? Wives, would it change the way that you talk to your friends about your husbands? How about your social media posts? Would those look different, excuse me, would those look different if for one day your heart was replaced with the heart of Christ? Is Jesus' heart in you, what would change? And it's an interesting question, but for followers of Jesus, it's more than just hypothetical. Because if you're a Christian, his heart is supposed to become more and more your heart. His attitude, his priorities, his mind is supposed to become more and more those things in us. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so we should be constantly evaluating this. Constantly looking at our own hearts and our own attitudes and then evaluating them against the heart and attitude of Christ. I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we continue in our series, Knowing Jesus. Uh, We've been studying primarily in the Gospel of John, if you've been with us the past several weeks and uh, and studying from his Gospel. Today we're going to look at at Luke's Gospel. Luke uh, includes an event in the life of Jesus that in the the chronology of events comes right where we are. And it's an important event that's going to teach us something about Christ's heart. And so Luke chapter 4, if you want to follow along in your own Bible or open up your Bible app. Also, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, You can stop by our blue tent out in the lobby and let them know that you'd like to have a Bible. We love giving away free Bibles, so uh, please take us up on that. But Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 14. Here's what Luke says in, in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And that opening line right there uh, in Luke 4, 14 is essentially Luke's summary of of all of the things that we've been talking about for about the last three weeks. If you were here um, when we talked about the fact that John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples were baptizing people and Jesus' disciples were baptizing people and the Pharisees found out this was happening. They were down in in Judea. And so Jesus decides he's going to move north to Galilee, right? And we talked about that uh, he had to go through Samaria and it wasn't because there wasn't another route 
north to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria because he was being obedient to his father. God had some work for Jesus to do in Samaria. He met the Samaritan woman, and uh, she believed, gave her life to Christ, and then through her testimony, we learned that many Samaritans came to faith, and then Jesus goes even farther north up into Cana, and uh, a Roman royal official in Capernaum heard that Jesus is there, and this man's child was very sick. And so he goes to ask Jesus for for a miracle, and Jesus does that for him and heals his son. So Luke summarizes all of that with just these few words at the beginning of 4.14. He says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, did all of that stuff in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, a news spread about him through the whole countryside. So all of Galilee is just buzzing with the news of Jesus. They're hearing these stories about what he's been doing and what he's been teaching. And it says he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Okay, so all of that is just set up for the story that we're going to look at today. But understand, there was an enthusiasm, word about what Jesus had been doing, his teaching and his healing, his miracles. All of that had spread. Everybody knew what was going on with Jesus. Now, verse 16, it says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And I want to pause right there because those few words are so significant to what we're going to study today. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Let's pull up the map real quick. Let's get our bearings on, uh, on where Jesus is and what's going on. Again, he had been in Cana last week. He was in Cana. The man traveled from Capernaum. Jesus healed his son. Now he's going to travel south down to Nazareth. And again, this is, is where he had been brought up. Nazareth is Jesus's hometown even though he wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem, remember? There was a, uh, a decree that a, a census should be taken, and so Mary and Joseph had traveled to Bethlehem. She gave birth to, to Jesus, and then they escaped to Egypt so that Jesus wouldn't be killed along with all of the other firstborn sons of Bethlehem. And then when they left Egypt, they came back to Nazareth back to their hometown. And so this is where Jesus spent his childhood and young adult years. And the, the truth is we don't know much about that time in Jesus's life, those formative years when he was a, a little boy and a young man. We can read about his birth in two of the gospels. Uh, we can read about one event in Jesus's life when he was 12 years old. That's in Luke chapter two. But uh, outside of that, there is no other information about Jesus' childhood in the Gospels. And so we just, there's a lot of blanks there. When we read, uh, this is where Jesus was brought up, we don't have a whole lot of detail. We jump from Jesus at age 12 to Jesus at 29 or 30 years. That's a big gap. But there is somewhere else in Scripture where we can look to possibly understand what those formative years might have been like for Jesus. And it's Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is understood to be a messianic psalm. And uh, if you were here when we taught on Jesus cleansing the temple, as he's flipping tables over, his disciples remember that it was said of him, zeal for your house will consume me. You remember that? That's out of Psalm 69. And I want you to see what else is there surrounding that zeal for your house passage. I want you to listen to what else is there in Psalm 69. And as, as I read this for you, I want you to think about how this might have applied to Jesus as he was being brought up in Nazareth. Here's what it says, starting in verse 7. I endured scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. 
I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Now, what a, what a stark explanation of what Jesus' childhood in Nazareth might have been like. It says he endured scorn for God's sake. Why does it say that? Well, Nazareth was a pretty small town in Jesus' day. Today, uh, modern-day Nazareth is like 50 or 60,000 people. But when Jesus was there, they're estimating that it was maybe 100, maybe 200 at most people. It was really more of a clan than it was a town. How many of you grew up in a small town? My hand's up because I did too. And what, what you know about small towns and what I know about small towns is everybody knows everybody's business, right? That is, that is just part of small town living. And so remember, like, everybody knew that Mary was pregnant, but Joseph wasn't the father of the baby. And so there was kind of this understanding that, like, there's, there's Jesus and he's Joseph's boy, but not really. And so the, the psalm tells us that he endured scorn for, for God's sake. So when Jesus is walking by, you know, did, did they tease him? Did they bring that up? Hey, Jesus, who's your dad again? And then they just all kind of start laughing. It says, I'm a foreigner to my own family. And what would it have been like to be the only sinless child in the family? Have you ever considered that? Kids in the room, I bet you're the only sinless child in your family. <laughs> but as much as uh, you might want to think that, Jesus was the only child to move throughout his entire childhood without ever committing a sin. And what would that feel like as your brothers and, and sisters stumbled with sin and, and were punished for it? There was consequences in their lives, but not Jesus. And so there was some kind of animosity there, I would assume. And Jesus felt that. Verse 8 says, I'm a stranger to my own mother's children. Jesus felt the weight of being different. And there, I think there was probably a loneliness that came with that. Like, who else can I relate to? I, I'm different than everyone else, even at home. It says, those who sit at the gate mock me. I'm the song of drunkards. And it talks about when I weep and when I put on sackcloth, that, that they make sport of me. So Jesus is, he's consumed with things that matter to God. And when the people who weren't consumed by the things that mattered to God saw that, instead of changing their behavior, they just made fun of Jesus, right? There comes Jesus, holier than thou Jesus, Right? And so again, just that isolation, that loneliness, this, this is possibly what growing up in Nazareth was like for Jesus. Ridicule and mockery and loneliness. And so I want you to, to understand as we read in this passage today, Jesus is going home, but, but it's not necessarily a, a great experience or, or great memories of home. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, verse 16 says, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay, every single Sabbath day, you could find Jesus at the synagogue. He made that the pattern of his life. I'm, I'm going to my father's house. I'm gonna worship God on the, on the Sabbath. And here in Nazareth, it's, it's in a synagogue. And synagogues were, were places of worship outside of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, synagogues came into being during Israel's exile uh, because their temple had been completely destroyed and many of them had been deported. 
And so synagogues became kind of an alternate place where the Jewish people could worship God. And Jewish law allowed in Jesus' day that any, any clan, any town that had at least 10 family groups in it, you could have your own synagogue. And so Nazareth, being between 100 and 200 people probably, they had enough people so you get your own synagogue there. So the synagogue that we read about specifically in verse 16 is important because this is where Jesus grew up. On the Sabbath days, this is where he would go, this very same synagogue. And it wasn't only on the Sabbath day that synagogues were used. They were used throughout the week to teach and to train young Jewish boys. And so this very synagogue in Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus learned the scriptures. It's where he learned the, the zeal for his father's house. It's where he learned the law and the prophets and, and all of that concerning God's word. And, and now he's come home, he's arrived in his home synagogue, and all of the people are watching him, right? Many of them had watched him grow up, but now they're hearing all of these amazing things. Again, news had traveled all over the countryside about Jesus and what he had been doing. And verse 17 says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is, is given this scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds this particular passage. And it's a passage that would have been very familiar to everyone in the crowd that day. I mean, these were words that had been read and recited for centuries because they tell of what Israel had been waiting for. They talk about the Messiah who's coming, the one who is, is going to liberate the captives. And, and uh, they came from the prophet Isaiah during another really dark chapter in Israel's history. So they, they knew this. They understood it. And verse 20 says, then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And that is a cue in the synagogue that the rabbi is about to teach. When I come up and teach, you sit down and I stand. But in the synagogue, everyone would stand for the reading of God's word, and then when the rabbi would sit, now he's going to start teaching. So this is a cue. Jesus is going to start teaching a sermon here. And it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, it's me. I'm the Messiah that Isaiah spoke of. I'm the one here with you in the flesh and blood. The time has come. This is about me. And you would think that a declaration like that would be received with, with just enthusiasm and excitement. And, and it kind of was. We're going to see that in just a second. But I think it's what Jesus didn't say that started to mess with them. Again, they knew this passage from, from Isaiah. They knew it by heart. And many of them, if not all, recognize that Jesus has left something out of this prophecy. It's what he didn't say that started to mess with them. And I want to show you what that is. Now, for us, this is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. For Jesus, the chapters and the verse numbers had not been put in yet, right? So he just had to find the spot. But for us, it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And as you read through the words in white, in white you're going to see that they're exactly what Jesus read. But then we come to that last line. It's the second line in verse 2, and it says, In the day of vengeance of our God. Why does Jesus leave that out? Why does he read all of the rest of this prophecy and then leave off the day of vengeance of our God? 
Well, it's because he didn't come to inflict judgment and punishment. Not yet. That is going to happen. That's part of Christ's second return. But his first coming, Christ's first coming was to offer humanity a way out of the day of vengeance of our God. And so he intentionally leads this off. And this is not what the Jews had expected. They, they were God's chosen people. The Jews were the ones who, who were supposed to rule when the coming Messiah came. They were the ones who were going to be the recipients of God's grace and all of God's enemies are going to be wiped out, right? We get God's grace, not everybody else. So watch what happens in verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Okay, so the, his opening line is, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing, but then he goes on to teach. And we don't know what those specific words were. Luke doesn't record that for us, but he does tell us that everyone was amazed at the graciousness of his words. And we can relate to that, right? We, we love the grace of Jesus. We lo- I love it. I hope you love the grace of God. We love thinking about God as a gracious God. Uh, but John tells us earlier in his gospel that Jesus didn't just come full of grace. He came full of grace and truth. And he's about to give his hometown more truth than they can handle. And the text says, they asked, isn't this Joseph's son? And some commentaries would suggest that right in the middle of verse uh, verse 22, that there's a shift There's a shift in the attitude, there's a shift in their tone, that they were amazed, they spoke well of him, and then the shift happens. It's like a reality check, but isn't this Joseph's son? Like he's saying all this really great stuff and we really like it, and Jesus, we like your message, but you're just Joseph's boy. And even that may have been intended as a slight because they knew he wasn't. Who... Whose son is he anyway? Like, we don't even know who his dad is. And he's saying all of these things. So they've changed their tone. They were initially drawn in by Jesus' words, but now I think Jesus can see it on their faces. And it's that familiar look of doubt. It's that look of cynicism. It's what he potentially experienced as a child, what we read in Psalm 69. This this almost mockery of, of like, prove it. You're saying all this stuff, but prove it. And... I just wonder like what Jesus's flesh was telling him in that moment. You know, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, just like you are, just like I am. And in his flesh, was he feeling that pull of like, this is my moment. This is my moment. They've made fun of me my whole life. They've questioned who I am, who my father is. This is my moment. I've got the power to do it. I've got the opportunity to do it. I could just lay this whole thing to rest, exalt myself and show them how wrong they've been about me. But Hebrews tells us that while Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, that yet he was without sin. And so while he felt these things, just like you feel it and I feel it, that desire to exalt self and to be proven right, that temptation was certainly there, but he doesn't act on it. Instead, watch what he does in verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And that phrase can be understood as heal your own, okay? We know that you've been doing this for other people, for other people groups. This is home. 
Heal yourself. Heal us. Do, do for us what you've been doing for everyone else. And Jesus said, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. That's looking back to what we studied last week. What did Jesus do in Capernaum? He healed the Roman royal official's son. So you're healing the enemy's son. We want you to do that here. Show us who you are, Jesus. Prove it to us. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like they're, they're taunting him. They're trying to draw him out. But Jesus says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now what is Jesus talking about here? He's using two accounts from the Old Testament, from the ministries of of the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha, and the crowd listening is well aware of these accounts in which God provided a miracle, but not for Israel. He provided a miracle for the Gentiles for the non-Jews. And it wasn't because there weren't any Jews who needed a miracle, but rather because Naaman and the widow from Zarephath had faith. They believed what God said and they acted in faith. And by using this illustration, Jesus is telling the crowd at Nazareth, I'm not here to put on a show for you. I know you don't believe in me, but I have nothing to prove to you. I'm looking for people whose hearts are full of faith, people like the widow in Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian and the Samaritan woman and the Roman royal official because my kingdom will be made up of people not who come from the right country or the right town or the right family or the right kind of background. No, my kingdom will be made up of men and women who come in faith. And so not only does Jesus deny their desire for a miracle, but he rebukes them for their lack of faith. And he tells them that the kingdom of God is now wide open for anyone who would believe. And with that, the people of Nazareth have heard enough. And verse 28 says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. So they've gone from amazed and speaking well of Jesus to just absolutely furious. And Matthew Henry explains this in his commentary. I want you to hear what he says. He writes, they were angry that Jesus should compare himself, whom they knew to be the son of Joseph, with those great prophets, and to compare them with the men of that corrupt age, when all had bowed the knee to Baal. But that which especially exasperated them was that he would suggest some kindness God had in reserve for the Gentiles, which the Jews could by no means bear the thoughts of. They're just furious that Jesus would suggest that the Gentiles would be part of God's coming salvation. And so in verse 29, they got up They drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But look at verse 30. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And I just wonder if in doing so, perhaps they missed the very miracle that they wanted to see. I mean, think about it. Here's this furious mob of people. They've brought him out to this cliff. They're going to throw him off. They want to watch him die. But Luke tells us that he simply walked through the crowd 
And was it like the, the splitting of the Red Sea? And Jesus just goes on his way. We don't know. Luke doesn't give us that detail. But it honestly doesn't matter because the people would have missed it anyway. Their hearts were so hard and they lacked the one thing required. And it was faith. They lacked faith. And do you know that that's still what God is most interested in today? That the thing that he is most interested in today is our faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't do it. You cannot please God without faith. And yet I talk to so many people who have this idea that if I do enough good stuff, then that's going to outweigh the bad stuff. And then when I stand before Jesus and the scale tips just a little bit to the good side, then he's going he's to look at that and I'm going to be okay. He's going to be pleased with that. All the while not knowing that God's word plainly says that your good works are like filthy rags before me. That's what it's like to come before Jesus and to say, I did more good stuff than I did bad stuff. It's like standing there holding cloth that is soaked with filth. That's what God sees when we do that. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Listen, the very reason Jesus stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, lived a perfect sinless life and died a sacrificial death was because he knew that all of the good that you could possibly do in your lifetime could not save you from the day of vengeance that is coming. Can't do it. Your good works are like filthy rags before God. So what did Jesus do? He absorbed God's vengeance in his own body as he was brutally beaten and hung on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath on our behalf and it has nothing to do with our efforts. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't work for it and neither can I. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God. And he gave it for one reason and one reason only. And if you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this, listen to me. It's because he loves you. God loves you. That's why he would send his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He does not want you to experience his wrath. He does not want you to stand on the insecure foundation of your good works and hope that they're more than your bad works and that maybe somehow you're gonna slide in. Listen, the day of vengeance is coming and he wants you to believe in the one thing that can save you from it. His son, Jesus, who absorbed it for you in his free gift of eternal life. But the only way to receive that gift is, is through faith. The only way to receive God's grace is through faith. Is saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe that you are God's son. I believe that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, and that you are coming again, and I repent of my sins. I want to live the way you lived. I want to know you. I want to pattern my life after you because my faith is in you. And when you do that, your sins are forgiven. That free gift of grace is given to you and you become part of the family of God. It's God's grace. 
And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a minute. I'm going to lead you through a, a really simple prayer that you can pray to begin that, that conversation and that journey with Jesus. But before we do that, I want to highlight one last thing. If you've been around Gen- Genesis for some time, you've likely heard us say that one of the main priorities of Jesus' life was that he was always exalting the Father. It was one of his main priorities, giving glory to God, always turning the attention to God, always trying to make God's name great. Even in his miracles, they weren't a way for him to to, to gain more followers. They weren't a way for, for people to speak well of him. All of the glory always went to God. And that's exactly what we see happening in Luke chapter four, that Jesus chose not to exalt himself. Instead, he chose the path of humility in order to exalt his father. And so in order for our lives to reflect the life of Jesus, we're going to have to choose that same path. We're going to have to walk that same path of humility. We're going to have to choose to exalt God. But so often we, we become so worried about what everyone else thinks and what we want them to think or, or being shown right and, and we'll, we'll do anything just to be, look better in somebody else's eyes. We'll change what we do. We'll change the way we talk. We'll, do, we'll get the right kind of clothes. Whatever we got to do to gain someone's approval or to make ourselves look better. And I just want you to recognize that Jesus never did that. Not even in his hometown. Not even in the place where he was mocked made fun of his whole life, lived in isolation, even when he had the opportunity and the power to do it, to elevate himself, he said no to his flesh and he said yes to exalting his father. And in Christ's humility, God was exalted. So we started this morning with this question. What would be different about you if for one day your heart was replaced with the heart of Christ? here's one thing I think would have to be different. That in humility, we would care less about making our names great and we would prioritize making God's name great in everything we do and everything we say. We would care less about what others think of us and we would care most about what God thinks of us. I hope you'll start to think in that way even today, because that is the heart of Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me from sin and death and hell. And thank you, Father, when I was stuck in that place and hell was my sure destiny, that you intervened by sending your one and only son and that through his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his life-giving resurrection, you have offered your grace, you have offered your forgiveness, your vengeance and your wrath has been satisfied in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ because you so loved me because you so loved every person in this room, because you so loved the world that whoever now believes in Jesus and puts their faith in him will not perish, will not face your wrath, but will have everlasting life. Thank you, God, for loving us. And Lord, if there are those in the room this morning who have not put their faith in you, 
who are trusting in good works or their family background or anything else for their salvation, Father, I pray that you would kick that foundation out from under their legs this morning, that they would have to rely on you, that their eyes would be turned to Jesus, that their blind eyes would be open to see your love and to see what you have done for us. And if that's you this morning and you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, all you have to do is ask. And it can be as simple as this. Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you are God's son. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness, but I repent of that today and I receive your free gift of forgiveness and grace. I want to live like Jesus lived. And if you pray a prayer like that, God says, yes. He will not turn you away and you will be folded into his family and you will be given a hope and a future in Christ that you could never earn for yourself. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving us from sin and death. Lord, the reality is for me and my brothers and sisters in this room, it is really easy for us to lose focus and and to get sideways on some of these things. I thank you for your word that redirects us. I thank you that as we watch how you interact with your own people in Nazareth, God, that Jesus, you, you, you never exalted yourself. That was never your concern. And Father, if our concern is anything other than exalting you, correct us today. We repent of that. We want to put you back in your proper place. And with everything we say and everything we do, we give you the glory, God, because you are the only one who is worthy of it. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We cannot wait for you to come again. But until you do, find us faithful to these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.